Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We'll turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm excited about the, this studying this text. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. I want to set the context. So I want to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. We went through the Beatitudes. Jesus is telling us what a Christian looks like, what a Christian should, their life should look like, the attitudes that ought to be. And, and um, as we come out of that teaching and the Beatitudes, we see that if we live this way, if we have these characteristics, then we'll be salt and light. We'll be different. We'll have influence uh, in the world. And so verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're told here by Jesus that he came to fulfill the law. Many wanted to know what Jesus' understanding of the law was, what his thoughts concerning the law would be. And he says, I came to fulfill the law. He loved God's law and obeyed it with all his heart. But the religious leaders of the day, they didn't understand the law. They had the written law, the Old Testament, just like we do. But they also had what we call the oral law, and, and that would eventually become the Talmud, which the, the Jews use even to today. But the oral law was a lot of the scribes' thoughts and commentary on the written law, the Old Testament scriptures. And what they began to do leading up to the time of Christ is they began to put a lot of emphasis on the oral law, so much so that they couldn't differentiate between written law, the infallible, inerrant, unchangeable word of God, and the oral law, which was temporal and fallible. So they couldn't differentiate between the two. They saw their oral tradition as being equally authoritative as Scripture, and that's the problem. And Jesus... It seemed like every chance he got, he pointed that out. He had he disregarded and and rebuked the religious leaders for their devotion to their man-made tradition. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, they thought it was wrong, sinful to heal on the Sabbath. That was part of the oral tradition. So guess what day 
Mark records Jesus does miracle after miracle. What day does he heal people? The man with the shriveled hand, the paralytic. It's on the Sabbath, right? And because of that, Jesus was considered by the religious leaders to be a heretic, to be a rebel. But he opposed not the law of God, but the traditions of man. So we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 26. Leading up to that, he says, Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If not, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is doing in the, in the rest of this chapter is he's bringing up six examples of how one's righteousness could surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were trying to attain a righteous on their own. They thought if they did all the right things, they dotted their I's and crossed their T's and did everything that the written law, the oral law told them to do, that they could attain righteousness on their own, depending on their selves. We know that's impossible. No one could attain their own righteousness. We need Christ righteousness, right? And so what he's going to do in these next, next several passages, different paragraphs, finishing out chapter 5, is, is give us six examples of how one's righteousness could surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And he gives these six specific incidences in which the, the scribal interpretations departed from the Old Testament scriptures. These are sometimes called the six antitheses because Jesus, what he's doing, he's contrasting what was taught by the religious leaders by what uh, the, the law actually said or meant. So he's going to give us some clarity here. And each of these, these six examples are introduced with a, with a formula. You have heard that it was said, and he'll mention what was said, and he'll say, but I say, but I tell you. And we see that in verse 21 and verse 27, verse 31 and 33, 38 and 43. We begin with these formulas. Just kind of give you an example from last week, if you, if you weren't here last week. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 10, the, the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So keep the Sabbath day. That's the fourth commandment, right? Number four. Keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Do not work. And so what the scribes wanted to do is say, well, that's not enough. We need to define what work is. And we said last week, they, they came up with the idea that if you tied a knot or you untied a knot, that was considered work and you're breaking the Sabbath. Or if your roof caved in, you remember that one? If your roof caved in, you couldn't, you couldn't repair your roof. That was considered work. You could move it to make sure no one's underneath it, but you couldn't repair it on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. So that was, that's what was happening during Jesus' day, that was the understanding of the law. There's the written law, but there's the oral law, and, you, and they couldn't differentiate between the two. So the first thing we see in our text uh, this morning is that Jesus is not teaching something new. He's expounding the intent of the law. Let's read verse 21 through 26 together, and then we'll... Um, We'll discuss some of this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, see there's the formula, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is not teaching something new. He's expounding the intent of the law. And some would say when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's referring to the Old Testament scripture, the Old Testament teaching. And when he says, but I say, he's introducing something new, superseding the old. But I don't think that's the case here. Jesus already taught us that he came to fulfill the law. Remember last week, the Old Testament, it's pointing us to Christ. So the contrast here is not between Moses' teaching, the law, and Jesus' teaching, but the way the law had been mishandled by the religious leaders and how it should be understood. In fact, look, look, flip back one page in, in Matthew chapter 4. Notice how Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Typically, he quotes the Old Testament. What does he do? And this is during the temptation of Jesus. Look at verse 4. He's being tempted by, by the devil. He says, but he answered, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. Notice that when he, when he quotes the Old Testament, he said, it is written. Look at, uh, down in verse 7 again. He's tempted again and he, Jesus said to the devil, again, it is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, verse 10, he's tempted again with something else. And Jesus said to, to, to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he begins there with, it is written when he's quoting the Old Testament scriptures. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, what do we see? We see him saying, you have heard, or it has been said. And what he's doing, he's introducing the erroneous or incomplete teaching of the scribes. But when he says, but I say to you, it's followed by the true teaching of the, the Old Testament, the written law. Instead of teaching something new or adding to the law, it seems like he's pointing out what the law was trying to do all along. And what's the purpose of the law? We looked at that last week as well in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The purpose of the law was to show man his heart, right? Well, Paul says, Romans chapter 3, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows us our heart, shows us our light, shows us our need, right? Jesus, when I asked, what's the greatest commandment, do you remember what he said? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, what did he say? You remember? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what, he, what Jesus is doing there, he summarizes the law. He summarizes the Ten Commandments. He summarizes the Old Testament. Come down to two commandments. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you love God with all you have all the time? Yeah, how many of you love your neighbor as you love yourself? We're so self-absorbed, aren't we? Your neighbor wishes you could love them like you love yourself. My neighbor wishes that as well. Yeah, we, we fall terribly short, don't we? What's the purpose of the law? To show us our lack, to show us how we fall short so we'll run to Christ. See, the, the Old Testament is not about rule keeping. It's not about keeping the law and, and, and 
keeping this rule and that rule, make sure I don't do this and I do that. God doesn't just desire outward obedience. That's what the Pharisees, the religious leaders were doing. But he wants heart obedience. And the thing about it is, this is not new teaching. This isn't new. Well, I thought the Old Testament's all about rules and keeping the rules and the do's and the don'ts. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the case. The Old Testament, God desired heart obedience. He's not concerned with outward rule keeping. In fact, Hosea chapter 6, we see this throughout the Old Testament. Hosea 6, 6. God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Not the rule keeping, not the keeping everything, my ducks in a row. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your what? With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Rend your hearts, not your garments. I want your heart. I want you to obey me from the heart. It's not about rule keeping. Micah 6 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So. This is not a new teaching. We didn't go from old rule keeping to grace and love in the new covenant. No, it's, it's, that's been the case all along. So when we read the Old Testament command not to murder, which is the sixth commandment of the ten, most of us would want to say, well, that's not me. I got that one checked off. I've taken care of that one, right? But Jesus, what is he doing here? He's pulling the veil of self-righteousness away and exposing the attitude behind the offense. So I don't think this is something new. He's expounding the intent of the law. Second thing is we see murder and anger. They're both transgressions deserving judgment. Think about murder. Don't kill. Don't murder. Of course, murder is sin. But the anger, the attitude behind the offense is also sinful. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Of course, we know that murder, what happens, you murder, you're, you'll be judged, right? He says, Everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I don't think this is, this is a ladder of offenses that re, result in sterner judgments here. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. He's, these are just examples of how anger shows itself in our lives. I mean, you have murder on one hand, and you're bad-mouthing someone on the other. Now, we know that murder is a worse offense than talking smack, right? Yeah, of course. In the Old Covenant, if you took a, a person's life, your life would be taken. That's not the case for saying ugly things to someone, right? But, but it is sin. Example, 
of that, uh, a colleague of mine, we were at a work conference and he saw some kids running around horse playing. Now my colleague wasn't married so he didn't have any children and he's around a bunch of his buddies that were also not married or neither did they have children. And so these children were horse playing and carrying on for a while until finally my colleague kind of got fed up. You could kind of, he says, if that was my kids, I'd tear their rear ends up. What he said. And, and not that they're, the children probably didn't need to be, didn't need to calm down, have something said to them. But he said, if that was my kids, I'd tear their rear ends up. Well, it just so happens the mother of those kids was right behind them. That ever happened to you? What do you think she said? What do you think she said? Now, she, did, she didn't say, well, at least he didn't kill my child. I guess I should be thankful about that. No, he, she wouldn't say that. What do you think she said? What she said was more along the lines of, that child's my child, and I'm not concerned at all about what you think. And if you don't like what my child's doing, you can take it up with my husband. That was kind of what she said to him. He didn't, he didn't kill the child, but he said some ugly things about the child and also about the parents. And that didn't go unpunished, did it? Murder, of course, is sinful. But so is the, the bad attitude leading up to it. The act of murder is preceded by an attitude of anger and animosity towards someone else. And that is, Jesus is saying, is sinful, not acceptable. And not all anger is sinful, is it? We think about the Lord, Mark chapter 3, verse 5. They're, they're so caught up in their, their oral tradition and, and, and what is... Uh, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And the Sabbath, they were so wrapped up, these religious leaders, about the Sabbath and, and not, not breaking the Sabbath, not breaking the Sabbath. You can't do this, you can't do that. There's nitpicky. Jesus, you can't do this on the Sabbath. You, you can't do that. That's allowed, but you can't do this. And so he was healing people on the Sabbath. And I love the Gospel of Mark because that's what Jesus does. He just thumbs his nose in their face and heals people on the Sabbath. Every Sabbath, he's healing somebody. It drove them crazy. He looked around at them with anger. He looked at the religious leaders because they're so worried about the Sabbath being broken. They're not worried about this poor soul that's crippled. Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So he healed on the Sabbath. And it says Jesus was angry. Of course, we know that our Lord was not sinful, was he? 1 Peter 2, 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We know that. We know that Jesus didn't sin, but he was angry. So we can sin, or we can be angry and not sin. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's, a, that's one we all know, isn't it? Well, how do you distinguish between godly anger, righteous anger, and sinful anger? I would say most of the time we're angry, it's not righteous anger in my life. Can you say the same as well? When we're angry, usually it's not righteous anger. Anger is righteous when it burns against sin. 
Anger is righteous when it burns against sin, not necessarily the person. Sometimes it's hard to know. But usually in my, my life, my anger is typically not righteous anger. So here in verse 21, Jesus quotes the sixth commandment. In this case, what they heard was scripture. He would say, you have heard it was said. In this case, what they had said was actually the word of God, scripture. It says if someone took a life, what would happen? They would appear before a court and be judged as part of the Mosaic legislation. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, Falling short of the actual deed of murder, which exposed a man to the judgment of God as a violator of the sixth commandment, is what he's doing here in verse 22. Yeah, you may not have murdered, but yet you're angry and you're insulting someone. You're calling someone a fool. And that word, you're fool, is it's kind of like calling, it's kind of like calling somebody a bonehead. To somebody who doesn't have any sense. Not very smart. We're not guilty of murder, but maybe our kids or maybe our spouse or maybe our co-workers, maybe they would say, if looks could kill, I'd be dead. Is that true? D.A. Carson, he asked, is murder merely an action committed without reference to the character of the murderer? Is not anger and maliciousness behind the act of murder? Is not a murderer first angry and Jesus saying that both the act and the attitude is blameworthy? And Hunter, he read for us the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, right after the fall, you see the progression of Scripture, right after the fall, you see this example, this picture of how heinous sin is when you have brother killing brother. And what makes it worse, Abel didn't do anything to Cain. He's just offering his gift to the Lord. But the scripture says that Cain was angry with Abel. And what was the result? He murdered him. There's this personal animosity between Cain or Cain has towards Abel. So Jesus not only upholds the law by calling out those who sin outwardly committing murder, but also addresses the attitude behind the, the act. In the, the attitude, the mind of the scribes and the Pharisees, or religious leaders, they, they thought you could be angry, you could hate even, if they did not go so far as overt acts of violence. If they didn't touch a person, if they didn't harm a person, these are just minor faults and God would not judge them for that, especially if they're continually offering their gifts and keeping the, the, the rules of the oral law. But yet the Lord teaches, according to the righteousness of His kingdom, that we should have not only our ducks in a row outwardly but our heart should be like his inwardly as well so you have this idea of anger I think it's probably something we struggle with I struggle with in my life 
anger being sinful, having animosity towards another. And by doing so, we displease the Lord. And thirdly, Jesus gives a, verse 23, he gives a very practical application relevant, I think, to all of us. You have the, the anger, anger and murder, one being the, the, the source, the other being the symptom, both being blameworthy. But then he gives this, what do we do about our anger? What do we do practically? Verse 23 through 26, if we've sinned in anger, go and be reconciled to your brother. What do you do when you realize somebody doesn't like you? Now we're Christians. We're we're always not we're not always loved by the world. I mean, we expose darkness, right, with our the things we say in our in our lives. We expose darkness, and those in the darkness don't typically like it, especially those in public positions. You know, you think about um, people who are out front, vocal. You know, think maybe like the president of the United States. Think about him. He's you have these leaders. They're they're loved by some, but they're always hated by some as well, right? I mean, the moment one opens his mouth, someone's disagreeing with him. Think about maybe even like pastors, that's true as people are, they're teaching and some people like it, some people don't. So sometimes we find ourselves in a position where someone holds something against us, but they shouldn't. Just because we're Christians or because of what we stand for, we're, we're not accepted. In fact, the attitudes that ought to be, right, the Beatitudes, there's one called the, the peacemaker, the ninth, and then the last, the, but the, the peacemaker. Look, look back in chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. And then right after that, what, what, what it talks about the persecuted, right? Sometimes us living rightly results in others having animosity towards us. And that's true. That happens in life. I think if you live for Christ, there's times where people probably would have animosity towards you just because you love Jesus, right? But notice verse 24. But what do you do if you find someone has, some, has something against you? They don't like you, but for good reason. That ever happened in your life? Yeah, we're believers. What we stand for, people don't really like that, and that's, you know, we can't really help that, can we? But what about when someone has something against us for a good reason? Notice what Jesus says practically what we should do. Look at verse 24. Or verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And what he's doing here, he's got two examples. Firstly, is in worship. And then secondly, dealing with legal matters in, in court systems and whatnot. But practically speaking, what do we do? So, well, when you're worshiping, you, it comes to your attention that someone has, you've offended someone or you've sinned against someone. What do you do? You leave your gift, be reconciled, then come back and offer your offering. And for many of us, we desire to be orthodox in our doctrine and we want to be biblical, and that's really important for us. And we, you know, what's important to God, we want to be important to us. And so we're diligent when it comes to doctrine, obeying the Lord, holding up the scriptures. But 
What seems equally important is being right with your brother, I think. Sometimes maybe we can be a little harsh and be a little, when it comes to some things, but we neglect others. And I think as Christians, we should be able to, maybe a, we should be able to look everybody in the eye and have a clear conscience. If you ask yourself, well, if, I, if there's someone have something against me, well, well I, I'm not sure if they do. Just a, a test. Can you look everybody in the eye and have a clear conscience? And Scripture teaches that, that we should have a clear conscience, I, I believe. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And he mentioned this throughout his letters. Paul before Felix, he's on trial in Acts 24, 16. He's been wrongly accused. And so he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And can we say that? Do we have a clear conscience before God but before man? Hebrews 13, 18, the, the writer of Hebrews, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Can you... Do you have a clear conscience? Can you look everybody in the eye and, and yeah, my conscience is clear. I think it's a good test for us um, as believers. Because we should be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 12, Paul again. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. And that's really important. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all so is there anyone that has anything against you? As they're talking, do you, somebody come to your mind? That, uh, that person might be, I could, I've acted this way or I've done this or that. Yeah, if I ran into them at the store, it wouldn't be like, how are you doing? It'd be like, you know, that uh, not really wanting to look at them or wanting to go down the other aisle or something, you know? Is that true in your life? If so, I think we need to be reconciled or, or at least attempt to be reconciled, right? If you're wrong, say you're wrong. Because what happens in our lives when we apologize? I mean, it didn't really matter what people, what someone's done to us or said about us or how they've hurt us. But if someone comes to us and we're real brokenhearted and, and humble and says, you know what, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. I mean, occasionally you might have somebody, you better believe you're wrong. You sorry, rascal? That may happen, but it takes kind of a cold-hearted person to do that. And in that case, it's going to be hard for you to be reconciled with them anyway. I mean, you can try and try and try. I mean, that, that text, as far as it depends on you. I mean, do everything you can, but sometimes people don't want to be reconciled to you. So what do you do? You can't fix it. And that happens, doesn't it? That happens. Sometimes you just can't fix it. You want to, and you can. And maybe it's your fault, or maybe it's your how you've handled it in the past, or or maybe this them, they just don't want to be reconciled. Sometimes you just can't fix things that are broken. You just got to live life and do the best you can and go on. But typically, if you come to someone and you say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Hey, I'm wrong, and I, I handle that terribly, and I, I'm wrong, and I want you to forgive me. I'm so sorry. I don't ever want to do that again, and I want to make things right with you. I mean, most people, what are they going to do? I mean, it's that Proverbs 15.1, right? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
you, know, you come humbly. Man, I was wrong. I'm so sorry that I did that. That was wrong. I shouldn't have did that. I shouldn't have handled it that way. I shouldn't have said it that way. I shouldn't have approached you at this place. What do people do? They, they're going to, yeah, they're going to forgive. They're going to accept that and move on. There's going to be some reconciliation there. You know, in ministry, as, as many of us, we, we consider ourselves ministers. You're not a pastor, maybe, but some of you aspire to be and want to be an elder. And I consider you elders. I meet with a group of men on Tuesdays. I consider they're pastors or under shepherds. They want to minister to people. We are all ministers, right? But in ministry, if, if you hurt people, you have, really have nothing to say. Do you know that? If you're harsh, you're ugly to folks, you don't have anything to say. Just remember that. Since as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Then he gives another example. When you're at worship and you realize someone has something to give you, what do you do? Leave it there. Don't just offer it. Leave it there. Go make get things right first with people. That's more important than your offering. Make sure you're right with people. Then offer your offering. And then he gives another example. Jesus does. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. There's, there's, a, there's a legal battle going on here. And Paul says that, that, Paul addresses that. We as Christians, we don't go to, we don't take people to other brothers and sisters to court. They're like, you're going to go to a lost person out in the world to, to help mediate. Do you not have somebody in the church that's got sense enough and wisdom enough to help you with your issues? That's another another sermon, another lesson for another day. But he says this legal issue, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Um, I think the, the, what he's trying to teach us here is that whole idea, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And now that's not literal. Like there's sometimes with... with um, with your spouse, especially, or maybe with your kids. You're like, oh, we can't go. We got to stay up all night. Well, I got to get up at five. So we, we got to get this thing taken care of real quickly. Okay, I'm sorry. It's all my fault. Let me go to sleep, right? Yeah, it didn't mean you, I don't think it literally means you stay up all night. I think it means deal with your issues pretty quickly. Don't let bitterness build. You know, just like he says, when you're, when you're at the altar and you realize someone has something against you, it comes to your attention. And that happens. We live life trying to obey the Lord, but sometimes we just we don't handle ourselves rightly. And there's times in my life where I'm just in my prayer closet having prayer time, and it just comes to me. You know what? I said that. You know what? I bet I bet they didn't take that too well. What do we do? We go and try to make that thing right. And sometimes I've done that, and they're like, "I didn't take nothing. I didn't. I didn't take. That wasn't a big deal. I didn't think nothing about that." And that's fine. But sometimes there are others. Yeah, that really bothered me. Humbly, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Yeah, I forgive you. And you can move on. So you have the, these examples, but this legal thing, like, yeah, go to, your, go to the person who you're, you're in this legal battle with. Go so you can receive mercy so later you don't have to receive judgment. So I think the principle there is deal with those matters pretty quickly. Be reconciled with all people. Be able to look them in the eye and not have a guilty conscience. Is there anybody in your life that you wouldn't want to run, in, run into and you wouldn't want to go down the same aisle as them in, in Walmart? 
is there? And if it's because something on your end, you need, to, you need to take care of that today. And that's our application for our sermon. Is there anybody that you went around and makes you feel uncomfortable because of how you've handled yourself? If that's the case, you need to make that right. That's our application, I think, for, for us today. We come to worship week in and week out. Maybe some of you go going to small group. But don't keep coming to worship and small group and doing the church thing if you, there's somebody that has something against you. You need to go and make that right. Go humbly. And you know, sometimes when you do that, you have to be, kind of be ready. Because sometimes people, maybe they've, you know, they've had a bad day or what you think you've done is really a lot, actually worse than you thought. And they may unload on you for a bit. So what do you do? You just take it. I'm doing, trying to do everything I can to live at peace with all people. And they unload on you and you just kind of take it, take it, take it. And let them do their thing. And you say, okay, we're, we're all good. I just need to get that off my chest and you can move on and be reconciled and continue that relationship. But I want to encourage you to do that if that's the case today. Be angry and sin not. Can you say that your bouts of anger are righteous anger? If not, we need to repent of our anger. We need to deal with our issues quickly and decisively. Don't let the sun go down on our anger. And of course, legally, those things don't let the law arbitrate your differences. Love should arbitrate them. You know, it's, it's interesting. You, 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 I don't know if you have. I've never seen a, an issue that went to court where there's a dispute and those people once it's over, they're able to have a relationship. That just doesn't happen, right? Of course not. And some of you, maybe you're, you're thinking about this. You think, well, I, you know, I, the whole murder thing, I got that. I got, ch ch check that off. I don't murder. But then it seems like there's, but what's the intent of the law? Jesus isn't just raising the standard, teaching something new. No, just, that's the purpose of the law, to show us our heart. So not only would he murder, but we don't have these, Resentment, animosity, this nasty feelings towards others. And maybe you're here and you've never, you've never repented of your sin. Maybe you've always thought you're a pretty good person, but yet we see this text and, yeah, I've never killed anybody, I've never stolen, I've never da-da-da-da, but then Jesus here, he's saying, but no, it's not just about the act of murder, it's about your attitude preceding it. And maybe you're, yeah, I, have a, I don't have a murder problem, but I, I actually do. I have an anger problem. And maybe you're, you've never repented of your sin. You realize that you're a sinner, that you have violated God's law. And lawbreakers are, are, are condemned. The Bible says you're condemned already if you've broken God's law. And maybe you've never been forgiven. Maybe you've never had that sin debt, that Judgment that's coming upon you. You've never had, you've never dealt with that. The truth of the matter is the Bible says that we're all sinners. The Bible says that Jesus came and he, he took on flesh and he lived a life for us. He fulfilled the law. He kept the law completely for us. He loved the Father with all this, with everything he had. Not only that, but he loved his neighbor as himself for us. 
So yeah, I can never do that all the time, 24-7. You know, you're exactly right. I can't either. None of us can. But Jesus did. He, com he completely obeyed the law. But not only that, but he went to a cross and he suffered the, the wrath of the Father for, for sinners. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. The Bible says, for our justification. So that sinners like me could have their sin debt paid for. So sinners like me could, could not be at enmity with God and separated from God. Separating, uh, uh, suffering the, the wrath that he's going to pour out upon me. But a sinner like me can have a relationship with the Father. Because all my sin debt and all the judgment has been taken care of by Christ 2,000 years ago. And the Bible says real, real clearly, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the anger, all the animosity, all the bitterness, all the nastiness. All the name calling and all the junk that causes all of that. Yeah, do you, we can be forgiven for that. Isn't that amazing? And there's many of us here who have. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been redeemed. We've been born again. We're now followers of Jesus. We're Christians. And if that's... If, if you've never repented, you've never had the, all that sin dealt with, I want to encourage you to, by way of application for you, as a lost person, if you've never been forgiven, it means you're lost. You're at enmity with God. I want to encourage you to repent. You say, well, well, how do I go about doing that? Well, the Bible says godly sorrow leads us to repentance. And there's got to be a godly sorrow. If there's godly sorrow there, if you're broken over your sin, then what you do is tell the Lord, you just talk to the Lord and tell him, I'm, I'm a sinner and I've broken your commands and I deserve your worst. I deserve your wrath, your punishment. I deserve hell. But Jesus... 2,000 years ago, died on a cross for me. He paid my sin debt. He died and he rose from the dead. I believe, I trust that he did that and I want to be forgiven today. Will you forgive me? Lord, forgive me. I, I'm broken. I want to be forgiven. I want to follow you all my days. Something like that. I want to encourage you to do that. You have questions about that, anything you don't understand, I'd love to talk to you about that. There's a lot of people here that'd like to talk to you about that. Maybe your parents or maybe a friend. I'd love to talk to you about that because the Lord loves us. And Jesus, he, he fulfilled the law. He kept the law for us so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin, so we could set free from, the, from all the anger and all the junk that's in us. And he can begin to change us. I, get, I have a trouble with, with anger, getting angry. But the Lord is little by little sanctifying me. Little by little sanctifying me. And he's sanctifying you as well if you're a believer. We're going to close. And when we do, we're going to finish. I'm going to pray. And when we do, we're going to leave because of uh, just trying to be safe and keep people safe. We can talk. We can talk outside. 
But if you have any questions about that, or maybe you're a believer and you're saying, you know, I'm a believer, but I really have an anger issue and I really need to get a handle on this because it's kind of, things aren't going well in that regard. I'd love to talk to you about that as well. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that your word is true and you desire for us not only not to murder, but you decide, you, you desire for us to have a heart like Christ. Lord, you desire for us not to be not to have animosity towards others. You desire for us not to be nasty in our thoughts and in our way we say, uh, say things about someone. You want us to have Christ's heart. He, he was angry at times, but he sinned not. And that's what you want us to be. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to obey you, not only in the outward of things, but in the heart that our heart will be like yours. Lord, we'd be merciful and loving. That we'd love you and we'd love our neighbor. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to do that. And Lord, there's some here that as we've taught through this text, they, they've got a, a, a face. They've got a name of someone that they know is hurt because of things they've done. Lord, I pray that you would allow your church to be obedient and be reconciled. Lord, may you humble us that we could be able to say those gentle words, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Maybe there's relationships that are strained within our church. There may be some that there's someone who's oblivious. Father, I pray by your, your, your Holy Spirit that you would make it known to them, Lord, to reveal their sin and their struggle and help them know how they should obey. I pray that you would help us to do that. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a, a family member, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a parent, maybe it's a child. I just pray that you would help us to obey you. And Father, for the one here who's lost, who's yet to repent, or they have a lot of A lot of sin, a lot of guilt. Father, I pray that you would open the lost person's eyes, that they would see how good you are. That they would be able to count the cost and know that surrendering to you is worth everything they'll have to give up. I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance today, that the little boy, the little girl, the teenager, the, the man, the woman, They'd be set free today from the bondage of anger and, and sin. Bless us, Father, as we leave. May you encourage us. And for the lost who's still not aware of their sin, still not aware of their need for you, I pray that even as they go to bed tonight in the darkness of that room, the quietness of that room, may you allow the sweet gospel message they've heard today ring loud in their ears that they too would know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.